Distilling Craft is brought to you by Dalkita, a group of architects and engineers who specialise in designing craft distilleries across the US. More information is available at our website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L-K-I-T-A dot com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Distilling Craft. I'm Colleen Moore. Hey, just a quick thing before we start today's show. While we're hard at work lining up new interviews and producing new shows, and you are so kindly waiting on us, we're going to reissue a couple of our episodes from Season 1 with some previously unreleased material mixed in. On that note, this week we're revisiting our very first episode, Number 1, with John McKee from Headframe Spirits in Butte, America. More on that in the interview. Our bonus questions include information about how he and his wife Courtney started out. Later in the interview, he's got some great information on the workhorse of the distillery, your stills. Let's go now to our man in the field, DJ, interviewing John McKee of Headframe Spirits. So mining seems to be very uh, intrinsic to your guys' distillery up there at Headframe. You've got named several spirits after it. Um, what do you guys kind of do to be part of the, the history of Butte? Well, I mean, that's really what we did. We co-branded our distillery with the history of our place in the world. And, you know, when you're from here, when you, or you've been here, you'll find out very quickly we don't call ourselves Butte, Montana. We call ourselves Butte, America. And um reason for that is turn of the century, we were the largest city west of the Mississippi. We were larger in Los Angeles, Seattle, Denver, it doesn't matter. Um, and the polyglot of people that were here were were from all over the world, but a huge smattering of Western and Eastern European. And uh, we, when they came to this town, they came together and basically, you know, just they put up their homes right next to the mines. They went down the earth, they brought up ore, and they powered the world. And um, when we, I grew up in this town, I grew up in the shadow of that. Mining um, still continues in this town, but it's open pit. You know, they're not miners as much as they are truck drivers. Um, the guys who went down in these mines, you know, from the 1800s until the late 1970s, these guys were true hard rockers. They'd go down and they'd drill and they would blast and they'd load carts and they'd lift it back to the surface. And, um, that history and that, that, that way of life is ingrained into this town and the head frames, the name of our company, head frame spirits, what the head frames are is they're, they're basically elevator towers you can think of. They, they stand up um, a couple hundred feet tall each. Um, they're in the center of our uptown because that's where the mines were. And these, these elevators lowered the guys into the mine at the beginning of their shift. And, you know, God willing, it brought them back at the end of their shift and brought the ore up as well. Um, and so when we sat down, you know, it, it didn't make a lot of sense to us. We didn't feel that we should name you know the company john and courtney mckee whiskey or we really felt that that co-branding the history of our place with what we do um, would have more value not just to us but actually to our customers i mean butte expats out in the world are just awesome um they're so proud of their place in the world and um when they know that um someone in back in Butte is, is doing something new and fresh and trying to make a difference in their place. Um, you know, they might be living in Memphis. They might be living in Chicago. It doesn't matter. They're going to go to bars and liquor stores and look for our stuff because they're, they've got that pride in place and we have that pride in place, which is why we 
didn't want to name it after ourselves. We wanted to name it after, you know, Montana and specifically after Butte America. And to do that, you have to, you have to look to the head frames on the hill and you don't have to look any farther. Brilliant names, the wake up gym, the speculator, the granite mountain, you know, I mean, just these, these awesome names. And so when we had our first sort of batch of brands, you know, whiskeys and, and products that we had coming out, it was you had 400 names to choose and they were all amazing and wonderful. I mean, you know, just the morning star, you know, these, these mine names that were just not just iconic to our place in the world, but just have great names. And since then, as we continue to release new project uh, products, we use that registry, we use that 1914 registry. And now what happens when we have new products coming out, I think this year of which we have four new products coming out this year um, we open it up to our staff and our staff goes in and everybody sort of selects a group of names they like, and then everybody votes on it. And that becomes the new whiskey or the new vodka or the new gin. Um, but we we're sort of blessed in that, you know, even if we just use the names from that registry, we're going to have 400 potential names to choose from. And that's, again, it's, what's cool about it is we're looking at the history of our place and, and using that in our brand where we're not just having to sit down and try to think up a cool name to call our whiskey or a cool name to call our gym. We can sit down and say, Hey, this is not only is it an interesting name, but there's a history to it. There were people who worked there who maybe died there. And there's a, there's a, a gravitas to that name that just slapping a, a noun on a, on a product doesn't necessarily do. Yeah. That is a really cool story. I know when you got started, you guys ran into some challenges sourcing your equipment, you know, your, your branding and your product is very old school, but the the back of your distiller, your manufacturing side is not old school. Uh, what kind of challenges did you run into and what did you kind of do to get around those? Yeah, well said. I mean, we, we have two parts to our, to our, to our business. We have our public facing side, which is our, this is the history lesson. That's where you get to learn about our brands and how that, what that means to our place in the world. But on the back end, where we make hooch, it's very much the science project. Um, the reason for that is that uh, about 12, 15 years ago, me and a f- uh, five other guys, we invented a way to distill biodiesel at commercial scales, um, you know, 60 million gallon a year refineries. And so we did that for a couple of years. And we, out, we built about 110 million gallons of annual production, all that still making diesel today. Um, and when I decided I wanted to come over to Hooch, uh, I went to the big equipment manufacturers, the Carls, the Cotas, the Vendomes, and I said, hey, where's your continuous system? Because that's the only thing I'd ever dealt with. I mean, when you distill anything out in the world, you know, unless you're in a college chemistry lab learning how to distill or in a pharmaceutical lab or in a micro distillery, you're not using batch distillation. You're using continuous distillation. Um, in fact, batch distillation is really infrequently used. Um, and so I just... I didn't even know how to batch distill, to be honest. I knew how to continue us. And I knew you could do, I knew the Maker's Mark and Brown Foreman and all these big guys do continuous distillation of hooch. And so I went to the equipment manufacturers and none of them had anything. They said, well, we don't do that. We don't build them for micros. I mean, if you're building one that needs 70,000 gallons of ferment capacity per day to go through it, yeah, we'll do that for you. But we don't build them for micros. And I got that answer from everyone. And I'm talking about t- true continuous systems too. I'm not talking about a continuous stripper to a doubler. I'm not. T- I'm talking about true, full continuous beverage alcohol distillation. And so, getting that answer from the equipment manufacturers was sort of a bummer. But I knew 
it wasn't the end of the answer. And so uh, one or two of those original guys that were with me at the buy diesel times, we got together over a weekend and a couple six packs, well, cases of beer. <laughs> and we basically just designed out the system right there. I mean, it wasn't, you know, every nut and bolt, but it was the overall how it would operate, how it would work. And then they went away and I sat down and, and with, uh, you know, help from friends and help from uh, 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 engineering companies here and there, built the first one and proved that it could work. And this one was sort of our museum piece. We still have it at our manufacturing facility on display and um, proved to the industry that you could do this, that you could make booze on a continuous system at a micro distillery level. And we used that to sort of start off what was our second distillery and our second venture, which was Head Frame Spirits Manufacturing. And in that business, what we do is we build um, our current version of these systems, which is a lot more refined than my first one. Um, where and we sell those to distilleries, you know, all over the country. There's one in Canada, and we're looking at exporting to the EU relatively soon. Wow. So just to go back, what is kind of the difference between a continuous still and a, a batch distillation you, you talked about a true continuous still what what does that really sure. mean well you know in batch distillation all you've got what you got there is you got a tea kettle right and you're gonna fill your tea kettle with beer and you're gonna turn it on and the first stuff that comes out the whistle is your alcohol and if you go long enough you're gonna exhaust your alcohol and start exhausting water vapor out your whistle and when that occurs whatever's left in the in the tea kettle is non-alcoholic beer. You dump it down the drain, you refill it with another batch of beer, you start over. And you can just sort of see, you know, the logic, the, the, the process of that. You've got to fill it, heat it, remove some stuff, dump the other stuff, fill it, heat it, remove some stuff, dump the other stuff. It's just sort of a labor-intensive process. And this is batch distillation, um, regardless of if it's ethanol or if it's pharmaceuticals. You're, you're trying to, you know, remove something from something in a, in a, in a a static volume where in continuous distillation what you if you go back to that tea kettle example as stuff's coming out the whistle we're feeding in new stuff at the same rate and what that does is rather than having to dump and refill and reheat and dump and refill and reheat you just keep pushing product through and in so that's sort of the difference between continuous and batch and then what true continuous and beverage alcohol what that means to me is in true continuous, what you're doing is you're, the product that comes out is a finished beverage-grade booze. It could be whiskey, rum, gin, vodka, tequila, doesn't matter. Just so long as um, the product coming out the back is ready for either is ready for consumption or barreling. Um, where in you know, batch distillation, you're doing multiple steps. You have to remove the heads and then you have to get a heart's cut and you have to, you know, strip the tails as far as you're able. Um, and in a continuous stripping system, like you'd see like a Vendome and Carl and some others offer a continuous stripper. Well, that's sort of like a, the beer stripping side, the first step, if you will, in, in, in distilling booze. But what comes out the top is a low wine um, with heads. It's not a finished grade beverage and you still need to send that to another either pot still or other technology to redistill it again to get to that final booze. And what I mean when I say a true continuous is that that system, regardless if it's ours or anyone else's that might be out there, when you put, when you plug in your fermenter to it and you hit go, the thing that's coming out the other end is ready to drink. It's not like do it again, do it again, do it again. That is often, well, not often, always required in batch distillation. 
So with a continuous still, they eventually reach an equilibrium state. Your feed rate is equal to the output rate, both in the, the stillage and the, the alcohol, as well as the, the heads cut that's coming off. My understanding is you can then go inside of that column at equilibrium and pull from various points to get different either percentages of alcohol or different chemical mixtures. Is that a good understanding of kind of what happens after that system is at equilibrium? That's basically a good understanding, and that is how you know historically the technology has worked. Um, and in that kind of system, you know, I refer to those kinds of systems as Goldilocks columns, meaning they're set up to take the exact same type of wash at all times. It's always got a, a beer wash made out of corn, and it always has exactly a certain feed rate and exactly enough heat going in the bottom of the column to set up exactly the condition that gives you these, these cuts. And those are called Goldilocks columns. Um, true dynamic um, um, continuous distillation columns usually have an internal partial condenser or an external condenser, but with reflux. And what that means is you can change the conditions of the column within a range of variables to change the output of the column. So for instance, um, in a more technologically advanced still, you can, rather than Goldilocks, you can feed a different beer wash. You can feed a barley or a rum or a, or a, or a, a corn wash. And, it does, and the conditions of the column can be dynamically changed based upon the conditions of your wash. Now, there's a range there, of course, but when you have that, that dynamism built into a system, you get more utility out of it, i.e. you can make different things. And so in a Goldilocks column, if you buy a, a, a continuous system that is built in a Goldilocks fashion, well, and you're making bourbon, and then you decide you want to start making malts, well, you might not be able to do that because there might be things that just that Goldilocks column was built to do exactly X, Y, and Z. And you're trying to throw variable R in there and it's just not going to work. And in a true dynamic um, continuous uh, flow distillation system, um, within a set of ranges, you're able to you know, tweak and tune those knobs, if you will, to accept different washes, accept different flow rates, and make different things. And that's one of the, the things that we really concentrated on from our design perspective is that we... We sat down and, you know, what were the very first sort of design criteria? Well, one of the very first things that we, in, in our, my criteria was that this will not be a Goldilocks column. This is going to need to make everything from a, from a low proof barrel uh, proof bourbon all the way up to azeotropic vodka. And it's going to have to be able to do it on the same equipment and on differing washes. And that sort of became the basis of our design. And if you start with a basis like that, you can actually get away from the Goldilocks column and make something with more dynamism and which is what we did. How does uh, vacuum distillation play into uh, your process? I know, I mean, obviously not true vacuum, but there are lots of people in your region uh, that are doing high altitude distillation because they can decrease the pressure on their column and get a little bit finer separation. Does the altitude affect your continuous process or once you're at equilibrium, are you always going to pull the same chemicals kind of no matter what it's that's a really good um really good question thanks for bringing that up yeah vacuum distillation means that um to give your your listeners just a little more details vacuum distillation means that you need you can use less heat if you will by changing the vapor pressure inside of a column you can um like a like i say a vacuum based ethanol um 
distillation system, you might be able to get product out at 100 degrees F overhead instead of 176 degrees F overhead, or 176 is the boiling point of ethanol at, at atmospheric at um, zero um, feet elevation. So what we do at ele- when you go up in height, you're absolutely right, regardless of if it's a, a, a batch or continuous still, you're going to get different, you're going to be able to go higher in proof, i.e. past the azeotrope of um, water and ethanol at a lower elevation. So yeah, we, our town is about a mile high. Um, We can make product on our system uh, at about 193.7 proof. And it's because at our elevation, the pressure is lower than it is at sea level, meaning that we are acting like a vacuum. There are limits to that. I mean, I can't put a still up at 30,000 foot and expect to get 198 proof. Um, But... um, you know, if I wanted to get higher degrees of separation uh, by putting a vacuum pump on, I could increase um, the the azeotropic limit of an ethanol water uh, separation by lowering the pressure even further. So yeah, it's sort of cool with our system. We have people who um, we have people who distill at sea level with our systems. I distill at you know a mile high with our systems, and on the same wash and on the same inputs and on the same feed rates. Yeah, I'll just get a slightly higher. I have the ability to get a slightly higher proof. Now, I don't have to. If I want, you know, let's say, you know, if someone down at sea level is doing 191.5 proof vodka and they just want to test it against mine, well, I can run down to 191.5. But it's just I have that added ability to go up to 193.7 because of the effect of elevation and the change in the vapor pressure uh, conditions on my still. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty cool question because all my background in the biodiesel side was all based upon vacuum. And, you know, basically the reason we did that was in order to get methyl esters, which are biodiesel methyl esters to distill, to vaporize and distill, you know, you get, you need to get up to about 1200 degrees F. Well, that's really freaking hot. And it's really hard to find utilities that can do that safely. But if you put a vacuum pump on it, well, then you only need to get up to about 500 degrees F. And that's not too hard to do. So we used vacuum-based distillation almost exclusively in everything we did in our biodiesel refineries with exactly that effort and that purpose in mind, like being able to distill things at a lower temperature. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's a really well-known technology using vacuum pumps. Again, I, I don't, it's sort of missing from micro distilling. There's a few people doing it, mostly home-brewed kind of rigs that are doing it. Um, and I think it's one of the, the next things that are going to start happening inside, um, beverage alcohol. We're going to start seeing more and more vacuum based distillation systems at, um, the micro distilling scale as time goes by. Yeah. We actually pulled a, a slight vacuum on my still, uh, at Rado and we did it so that we could, uh, change our heads cut. We were on a pot still, but by lowering the pressure on there, we could actually change the various boiling points of the chemical elements and we get a cleaner uh, separation on a pot still than you would normally expect. So that's, that's where I was aiming as not necessarily on the azeotropic end, but on the kind of the mid range where you can separate other chemicals out. Yeah. And, and it's really great when you're doing something like, you know, you're trying to de-alk wine or you're trying to do something that is, um, um, uh, degradable thermally. So if you know if you put too much heat to it, it starts to break down. Well, those are also really good places where you want to use vacuum-based distillation rather than heat-based distillation. Um, 
or atmospheric distillation because you can lower that temperature that you uh, you need to throw at things. So, uh, since you are using so much technology in your still, what are you doing on say the mashing or fermenting into your uh, process in order to kind of keep the technological level high across the board? Well, you know, the thing that Distilling is the easiest part of uh, distillery. I mean, I know it's a great part of the tour, and I know that the the lore of making the cuts and my head's cut versus their head, it's all a little bit of BS and hokum there. Um, the real important part in running a distillery is your mash and your ferment, because to distill, you know, the basic definition of distilling, to distill is to concentrate the essence of. Well, if you make junk in your mash and ferment, you're going to concentrate the essence of junk. It doesn't matter. There's nothing you can do at distillation to make it better. So with that in mind, we concentrate really heavily on the quality of our mash and ferments. And in order to get that quality level, it's you got to throw some science at it. You can't just throw some grain in and heat it and throw a little malted barley in and then you know throw some yeast in it once you've cooled it. You need to be doing things with pH changes throughout the mash cycle that you're adding, um, adding or uh, bases and acids to get your pH proper, such that your enzymes are activating properly for starch conversion. Um, the ways that we through that's some of just the science that you have to follow. We've thrown some technology at it too, where the finer you mill your grain, um, the more access to potential starch you have, i.e., the more potential yield you have. So when we've got high shear mixers in our mash stone that allow us to, even the, the grain that has been ground, while it's in the mash stone, the high shear mixer is running. And you can think of the end of the high shear mixer as just having a, just having a Cuisinart on the end of it. Because anytime it comes in contact with a chunk of grain, it's turning it into a smaller chunk of grain uh, mechanically. And then what's great about that is that that gives the chemistry and the biology of the process of, of accessing the starches and converting those to sugars to occur, um, more efficiently and therefore, you know, right, drive up your yield. Because again, in a brewery, who cares? You mash and you ferment, you throw in a tank, you let it settle for a couple of weeks through a long fermentation. You, you know, take, don't take the trub, take everything else out of there and you get to sell that. But in a distillery, you know, if you make 10% alcohol, then what you have, and let's say you're doing 1,000-gallon batches, what you really have, if you're doing 10% alcohol in 1,000-gallon batches, you got a 1,000 gallons of wash, but only 100 gallons of that is booze. 900 gallons of that is non-alcoholic beer. And what we're trying to get at is the booze. And so if you do a poor job in your mash and ferments and you get 5% alcohol or 4% alcohol... Well, that's the difference between, you know, 100 potential gallons of booze out the back end or 40 potential gallons of booze out the back end. And those differences are critical to distilleries. And I don't think a lot of them spend a lot of time on that because they think uh, erroneously that the still is the most important part. But really, you know, stills are easy to run. It doesn't matter how technologically advanced they are, how, you know, simple they are. The technology is thousands of years old and very well understood and takes very little actual knowledge to do properly what really takes a lot of work what really takes a lot of science and know-how to get right is that mash and ferment side and if you concentrate on that side you're going to make great spirits as a result you mentioned something in there i i don't think i've heard before uh, where you're continuously monitoring ph and doing 
adjustments both up and down during your process. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about how you do that? I've never sure. never seen anybody do it. Sure. Well, if you're using enzymes or even like, you know, you use malted barley because you're looking for the enzymes to assist you with cracking the starch. And um, some people use liquid enzymes as well. And the reason behind that is you can more precisely add, uh, control your starch conversion. But enzymes are, you know, they grow, they live in a certain, in a manner of speaking, or they activate very well in a manner of speaking inside a certain curve. It's almost like a bell curve. <clears throat> and their, their ratio of productivity from not doing any conversion of starch to sugar at all to doing 100% conversion of starch to sugar is almost always dependent upon two things, and they'll be different for every enzyme in there. And those two things are temperature and pH. And if you, so if you've got, say, an enzyme that you're looking to, um, you're looking, you've got three different enzymes you're using in your mash uh, process, and one of them um, does all of its work at 150 degrees and a pH of 5.2. And the other one does all of its best work at 172 degrees and a pH of 4.8. Well, when you're doing those temperature rests at those places to allow the enzyme to do their work, well, if you don't also adjust the pH to their optimal range, you're not going to get the biggest bang for your buck. So, like, let's say, for instance, you you know you, you get to that first pH rest, it's about 140, um, it's about 147 degrees, and you're pitching your first enzyme. But, and that's right in the temperature window where it wants to do its best work, but its pH window for maximum um, optimum use of that enzyme is, say, 4.7, and you're sitting up at 5.7. Well, if you don't add an acid to drive your pH down, then the enzyme isn't going to do as much work as it could have done to maximize the starch conversion. Because, again, we're trying to convert starch to sugar so the yeasty beasties in fermentation can eat the sugar and make booze. Well, if you don't give the enzymes the optimal condition to maximize the amount of starch conversion possible, then you're not really getting at the potential yield that you could have. And so um, you're seeing a lot more of the larger distillers really coming to understand the importance of mash, pH, and temperature management with the express purpose of maximizing starch conversion. And... um, you know, little small outfits, you know, if you're doing 20 or 30 gallon mashes, well, maybe, you know, this just isn't as critical to you. But when you're trying to make your debt service in a very rapidly growing industry like micro distilling right now, you know, you need to have your crew out selling or you need to be out selling. And the last thing you need to be doing is doing extra distillations, mashes, ferments and distillations, because you're not maximizing the potential in your mash and ferment to get at all your sugars. You know, I mean, the difference between a five and ten percent wash is to an extra mash and ferment. And if you can access more potential sugars by converting more starches in your mash by doing enzyme pH and temperature management and get yourself from a five to a ten percent wash, well then you just took an additional mash and ferment out of your production. Are you titrating that during mashing or how are you determining your additions? I mean, obviously anybody can read the pH currently, but how do you know what your additions look like considering you have an organic base that obviously you're going to see? Well, what you're doing is, yeah, you are titrating. You are basically running the science of pH management. So you're taking a sample, you're getting a pH off of it. You're working the, um, um, you're working the science to tell you how much of, a, of an acid and at what strength you need to add to the mash to get you to the pH that you desire. And if you're not, 
you know, it is the science of it. It's not just like, ah, oh, you know, I'm at 5.2 and I think I need to I'd be at 4.7. Let's just dump a thousand mils of, of, um, phosphoric in there and hope for the best. I mean, there really is some science you put to it. You take a sample, you titrate it out, you make sure what you need, you do the math and you go back and you do your ad. But what's sort of nice about it is that unless you're prototyping, um, you know, if you've got standard washes, you're only going to do this once or twice. And then you're going to have pretty much, you know, your standard grain is what you're buying, your standard mash and ferment, uh, your standard mash procedure sort of built out. You're always within a range of how much, you know, acids you're going to need to add or bases you're going to need to add to get you through each step. And so you get away from the, you know, having to do the science every time because the recipe is the same every time and the starches are the same every time and you're always within a range. But when you're prototyping something, heck yeah, you are doing the science to get there. Well, that's that's part of the the goal of this podcast is to go seek out other distilling nerds and talk about, hey, you know, maybe you should check the pH on your on your mashes. And then, I mean, it's just an idea that's out there then. And people who are currently having distillers might go, oh, well, I have a pH meter. What the hell? Let's you know, give it two seconds to look at it. So if you were going to start your distillery over again, what would you do differently? I'll, I'll give it as if I was starting the distillery now. Um, I would be cautious on using some of the standard wisdom, if you will, that was put out three or four years ago about how to open a distillery. And that wisdom was um, make a vodka and a gin and make a whiskey and sell your vodka and gin to keep the doors open while your whiskey ages. And that sort of worked when there were only 300 of us, you know, five years ago. But there's 1,800 distilleries now and there's about 300 more per year opening up and um it's a real eye opener when new distillers have opened with that sort of like oh well this is how you're supposed to do it and they show up to the um they show up to a liquor store or bar or an account with their vodka in the gin and they just and the bar manager the buyer looks at them and says get out of here i've already got a thousand vodkas and gins i'm no I don't want what you've got. And I think that, that that wisdom or that logic is something that really needs to change with people who are opening distilleries now is that um, it worked at one point. It doesn't work anymore. And I use it as a cautionary tale because I think a lot of people think they can use that old logic and open successfully. So um, if I were to open a distillery right now, brand new, coming out of the gates, I'd be trying to find something um lower in the standards of identity. So if you go to the TTB standards of identity, you know, the first category is vodka and you go below that's whiskey and go way down, go to page six, page seven, start looking into weird stuff that, you know, went into the standards of identity back in the fifties when they drafted it, that no one's making look at rock and rye and look at weird distilled spirit specialties that don't, you know, things like, you know, there's every bar in the world has a bottle of Campari. You know, why, if you're opening right now, do you want to try to, do you want to try to get a bar to buy vodka or do you want to try to get them to buy something unique and special that everybody wants? And, um, I definitely do that. Secondarily, you know, maybe I just open a cidery or a brewery or any number of things that, you know, that you can do underneath alternating premise licenses. So you could still have your distillery, but use an alternating premise license that allow you to be a cidery one day a week 
or a brewery one day a week and have a product that you can sell from that aspect of things as well and have some debt service or some ability to meet debt service that um, um, you might be challenged to do by just trying to sell vodka and gin while your whiskey ages. So long answer to your question. Sorry, but that's sort of what I think. So where do you see the industry going in the next five to 10 years? Um, there's a bubble coming. I'm not, I don't want to sound negative Nancy, but there's a bubble coming. Um, you can see it a lot on the ADI forums now, entire distillery for sale. Um, and it's basically a result of really, really rapid growth. In my opinion, a result of really, really rapid growth. And another, um, another, I think sort of critical failure that people are making when they start their distilleries, you know, a standard business model is, you know, do your CapEx, so all your equipment and your building and your plant, and then go out and get about 18 months of OPEX money on, so, you know, that will cover your bills and, you know, get your, you know, get all your expenses taken care of for about a year and a half. And that's sort of a standard model in business, because after a year and a half, you should be turning enough profit to hold your own. Well, you know, that's sort of tough in distilling, because, you know, it might take you three years to have a product coming out of a barrel that's worth selling. And you're going to run out of money before then. So I think um, we're seeing that now. We're, we're seeing um, people who are up against that wall. Of, there's no more cash. And they're, they're wondering what to do. And so you're seeing a lot of, um, uh, you're seeing some go out of business. You're seeing a lot of people lose their businesses because they're taking on investors who are taking on majority stakes. Or you're, what's also you're seeing now is you're seeing a lot of, you know, bigger guys snapping up the little guys. There's been a lot of acquisitions this year and, um, you know, everything from high West to Hudson. And, um, um, there's a, there's a lot of people who, um, are moving into the acquisition market and taking their distillery to larger levels by being able to, um, co-monetize it with money from larger organizations. So it's definitely not that the, you know, doom and gloom or the you know, sky is falling. That's certainly not what I'm saying, but I think there is a bubble on a horizon, you know, one to two years out. And I think we're going to see a little contraction and then like the breweries of, you know, like brewing, like it was in the eighties and it's or nineties and it's contraction. And it's, it's just crazy resurgence since I think we'll see a resurgence, but you know, the big thing people just don't really put their head around is the different in, difference in taxation. You know, it's almost, it's funny. It almost like attracts a level of sin. So wine has virtually no tax at all, um, per unit volume gallons and beer has a little bit more, but just five bottles of booze is $13 in federal tax, much less your state and local taxes. So I think a lot of people don't really have that fully worked out when they jump into the business either, because the inputs of taxation into making hooch have a huge impact to the bottom line on making money later on. And I think we're seeing some people who are just didn't have the math worked out before they started uh, really finding out, you know, year two, year three from a cash flow perspective, that they're getting bit by things that are very different. You're not opening a brewery, not open a winery. Things are very, very different. And it's not just the still. Uh, So as a equipment supplier, what are the mistakes in initial equipment, selection that you see new distilleries make um buying dangerous equipment i mean that's it um they there's too many equipment manufacturers that are putting out things that are not inherently and intrinsically safe and um, we've had a death in the industry 
um, two years ago as a result of something like this. And you can still go to conferences now and see intrinsically unsafe inherently unsafe equipment on the floor being sold to distillers. That's my number one issue with, um, with, uh, um, what's happening. The other thing I really tend to see too, is I tend to see this thought that, well, I can't afford a larger still, so I'll buy a smaller still and I'll use that to make me some money for a year or two and then I'll upgrade. And in some cases that works, but just as often, in my opinion, it's not working. So what's happening is you're getting to that point you need to upgrade and it costs a lot of money and you haven't yet started to really turn a profit year one, year two, but you need bigger equipment and you go to the bank or you go to your investors and they say, no, you're not turning any money now. I'm not going to further capitalize you to go into greater debt to buy bigger equipment. And so I really do feel that a lot of people, you know, don't understand that your capital expenditures are not your large outlay of cash. It might seem like it, Oh gosh, I got to buy a building and mash tun and fermenters and a boiler. That might seem like a lot of money, but it is absolutely pennies on the dollar compared to your annual operating expenses. And so in the beginning, when people try to cut corners on their capital expenditures of property, plant, equipment, and try to get in cheaper, I think they often find issues when they try to expand. And, and I would suggest anyone that's thinking about opening a distillery that, you know, if you're setting up for, you know, a, a, a first year sales model of two to 5,000 nine liter cases a year. Well, if you're starting out on anything less than, a, than 500 or a thousand gallons mash per minute a day, you're already not there. Where, where, what are you going to be doing? Let's, you know, maybe we add an extra 10 tons to your, your boiler or your chiller. And now, Hey, you can grow into this equipment and Absolutely. not have to tear out the whole system and start over. Yeah. The incremental costs are just so much lower. By doing it on the front end, even though it seems expensive, by doing it on the front end and doing it on the back, it's just so much cheaper. Today's interview is brought to you by the team of architects and engineers at Dalkita. Dalkita has been serving the craft distilling industry for over 13 years and are committed to production facilities that work. Now let's get back to the show. Next up, we're going to broadly cover the types of stills and distillation methods that could be used in a distillery. We'll also talk about energy recovery and maintaining an established flavor profile while scaling up your operation. There's a lot of great information from DJ, our visiting distiller in residence, so let's give a listen. So where to get started? Uh, most of you have your own distillery, which means you already have your own stills. Where I want to talk about is what do you do when you're looking to either grow your operation or possibly start over in a, a new location. It's not the easiest thing in the world to just pick up and move a distillery. There's always things we want to tweak, uh, and you have to be careful when you're doing that tweaking that you're able to keep your flavors going the same way. So the big way to talk about this is starting off with continuous distillation or batch distillation. Everybody knows continuous distillation is going to be the most efficient way to run your operation, particularly if you're running for a lot of hours. You know, if you're running more than one shift, you're not going to have that second heat up and cool down draining of the pot uh, that you would in batch distillation. And so that enables you to produce that much more booze in the day. It also will save you a little bit on the energy cost because you don't have to heat up that new batch. And of course, have the wasted energy that goes down the drain from the previous batch. So generally speaking, I guess with energy, we need to jump over real quick and talk about vacuum distillation. Vacuum distillation is going to be something you can use to bring down your energy cost. You pull a little bit of vacuum on your still, all your boiling points are going to drop. This will do a couple things. First, it'll clean up your cuts because you'll separate out the chemical in your still 
and give them all a little bit more range on their boiling points. And then secondly, you'll move that boiling point, depending on how much vacuum you pull, from, say, 212 down to maybe 202. Uh, and that 10-degree drop is 10 degrees less you have to put into the pot, so that'll save you a little bit of energy on the input side and correspondingly a little bit on the cooling side. Uh, now, inside of that, we have our column stills, our pot stills, and our hybrids. Obviously, column stills, everybody knows, that's how you get the good rectification, the cleanest cuts. Uh, the big focus with column stills needs to be on why you're using a column still. Generally, column stills allow you to create the most chemical separation. This is great if you're going to be making vodka or NGS, and you need to get everything else out except for your alcohol, so you can get up to that 95% range. Uh, on the other end, your pot still is mainly going to pass things through. Uh, it's not refined enough to, well, in most cases, it's not refined enough to give you those cuts you're looking for. So what you're going to do with a, a pot still is you're just going to boil it up, create theoretical plates of reflux in the head. Uh, theoretical plates? Yeah, I know. Weird concept. It's a chemical engineering concept. And what it's talking about is how many times when that vapor is moving up through your pothead, that it will actually reflux. And basically it counts, every time it refluxes, counts as a plate. Because that's what happens in the plates in your column still. And so you can compare a pot still's efficiency to a column still uh, using this theoretical plates measure. And it is possible to get as good a separation in a pot still as you do in a column still. It just takes a lot, lot more work. You're, you're talking about, you know, obviously induced reflux. You're going to be talking about vacuum distillation we're going to be doing a lot of things to create uh, a lot of forced reflux inside that head uh, most of the time it's not worth it because you're running a pot still because you want to pump over uh, not blobs of chemicals but nice happy bell curves of chemicals so you're going to get the main one you're looking for as well as the tails of several other chemicals and that'll help give you a richer flavor profile uh, typically when you start talking about column stills you're going to get more of a, uh, a flavor profile that's very specific. You're going to taste ethanol. You're going to taste, you know, independent characteristics. And sometimes you miss some of the, the gaps in between. Uh, which is brings me to the other thing. Hybrid stills. Uh, you know, your basic uh, four-plate pot still. Which, not at that point, it's not a pot still. Uh, but it's not really what we think of when we talk about column stills. You know, or 20-plate or 23-plate column still. Uh, hybrids are great because it gives you some of that additional reflux that you wouldn't normally be getting in a pot still, but at the same time, it's not giving you so much that you're not able to pass through kind of those middling chemicals. Uh, so if you currently have a column set up and you're moving into a new facility and you're saying, Hey, now I want to add a pot still, um, you know, you need to think about how the flavor of your product is going to change from when you're working on your column still to the pot still and maybe have a brand new product design there uh going the other direction if you have a pot still and you want to move to a big column still uh, i know several people are making vodka on pot stills right now and they're saying hey we're gonna look at growing it's time to you know bring in the big column still this is where theoretical plates can help you so what you do is you go buy a chemical engineering book or find a friendly chemical engineer and you calculate what the theoretical plates of reflux in the pot of your still are or in the head of your still. And then once you have that number, you go get a column still that has slightly more plates. Because you can always open up a plate or move, you know, bypass it. And so that way, if you have a couple more, you run it through. If the flavor's not quite what you want it to be, you know, you can always cut, you know, drop a plate. 
but it's really hard to add a plate if for whatever reason you're getting more reflux than you calculate. So uh, always upsize at least one or two plates to give you some additional flexibility. Um, that's kind of the, the types of stills. So now the question is, how are we going to heat the stills? Uh, for ever and ever, uh, stills have been heated with direct fire. Believe it or not, it actually is very safe to run a still on direct fire. When I say very safe, what I mean is not, you know, plunk a still on the middle of a bonfire and say, hey, we're safe. Uh, what I mean is you have to have engineering controls around there to control the exhaust from the direct flame and, more importantly, control it away from the still. You know, a chimney, a very solid chimney. Uh, also, we have to increase the ventilation in your space such that if there were a rupture in your still, we would be able to keep it so that it didn't immediately flow into the fire uh, and create a worse situation. So direct fire is certainly doable and there's a mystique around it, but uh, we have to have uh, some extra engineering controls in place to make sure that it's safe. Uh, but once you do, you're good to go. Now, the easiest thing to do with, with a still is steam. Now our heat source is in another room, sealed away, generally safe from any incidents that could happen with the still. And now we can move that steam over and use it to create all the heating we need. Uh, the two most common ways to do this is either direct injection of steam or doing a steam jacket. Uh, now, if you're doing direct injection, the nice thing is it's the most efficient thermally. That heat from the steam goes directly into your wash, heats it immediately, and moves you closer to getting evaporation. Um, the downside is you're diluting your wash with that water. In a batch operation, by diluting your pot, you're decreasing the amount of alcohol that you can get out of there. Uh, if you ever get a chance to look at some of the evaporation tables for an ethanol water mixture, you can see that when you get down even into like 10% ethanol, which is most washes, you're only going to be getting maybe 30% in that vapor that comes off of there. Uh, this goes back to the theoretical plate. So that 30% vapor then condenses on a theoretical plate or an actual plate. And now that theoretical, now that 30% is able to evaporate again to a higher level. Uh, and you can follow those all the way up the, the chart to figure out how many plates you, you need to get from A to B. But what you're doing in the direct injection is now you're going from 10% to 9%. So now on your first plate, you're not at 30% anymore, you're at you know, 27%. Those are all ballpark numbers, so please don't quote me on that. We can actually get one of these tables in our show notes and I'll show you, and be able to show you exactly what I'm talking about. Where this really kills you, though, is down in your tails. Now, when you start getting down into that 1% range, it is virtually impossible to strip it out, which is why most stripping stills are about 90% efficient. You can get 9% out of your 10% wash and that 1% stays behind. Unfortunately, when you're doing direct injection, since you're doing dilution the whole way, you'll get to that 1% a little bit sooner because the overall volume has increased. So you won't get quite as much alcohol out uh, with a direct inject still. So how do you solve that problem? Well, this is where all the steam jacketed stills come in. And basically now we keep the still on the inside, the steam on the outside. Uh, by doing this, we're able to be slightly less thermally efficient, but as long as we're stirring the wash and doing a couple other things, we can get pretty close to the direct injection. But now we're not diluting anymore, and so you can get more alcohol out of the still. And that's kind of where we're at for pluses and minuses there. Along with steam jacketing is the Banmarie system, which is very similar to steam jacketing, but it also works in a direct fire solution. So now 
whatever our medium, whether it's steam or fire, we heat an outside pot of water, or oil in some cases, and we use that to heat the wash. The nice thing here is that we get very even heat over the wash. You won't have as much burn on, particularly if you're doing like brandy on the fruit. Burn on is a giant freaking nightmare, and it can create some really funky flavors. Uh, and so that's where bain-marie's are typically used. But if you're distilling on grain, it'll still help you if you're using a bain-marie style still. Uh, personally, I would use it in most situations unless you're able to put in, you know, just a clear wash with no solids in there. Um, and even then, it still gives you a little even heating, and I like them. I'm a big fan. So where does that really leave us? Well, <laughs> I had a whole thing on the math on how to do the still sizing. And apparently it's really boring to listen to me talk about math. So what are we going to do about this? Uh, I'm going to try to jazz it up a little bit while still giving you the information. Uh, I kind of talked about how the efficiencies work. Where you put in 10% alcohol, you get out 9% alcohol. Uh, this works on a finishing still in the same way. If you say you put in 30% alcohol, you get out 29% alcohol. So it's not quite as bad on the second pass around. Uh, this is really helpful if you're, say, making gin and you're putting in 60% alcohol and getting out 59% alcohol. You know, we can call those very efficient operations, particularly if you're using NGS or vodka as your gin base, where you don't need to do a heads and tails cut either. And really all you're getting is 59 60ths of your alcohol back out of the pot. That's a good thing. On the other hand, if we're starting to talk about whiskey, uh, whiskey, particularly double distilled whiskey, you're going to get 9% efficiency on that first pass. That's, well, assuming you're putting in 10%. If you're putting in 8% wash, you're going to get about 7 eighths out, so your efficiency is going to drop. Uh, on the other hand, if you're putting in 12% wash, you're going to be a little bit more efficient. There's obviously a range around there. Before I go too deep into this efficiency thing, let's jump back and talk about continuous stills because continuous stills do not have this efficiency problem. Because they don't have the dump cycle, the alcohol that gets put in stays in there and comes back out. Uh, you'll typically see the effluent on a continuous still down in like the half percent range or the quarter percent range because you're able to hold it in there. You just keep cycling it out and distilling it. Uh, you can get very, very efficient uh, continuous stills and get all your alcohol through there. So continuous stills are totally separate from what we're talking about here with efficiency. We're going to mainly be focusing on uh, batch stills where efficiency kind of matters. That being said, most of us are running batch stills anyhow. So going back to the different types of alcohol or different production processes. So with a double distilled whiskey, at the end of all the math, you end up somewhere about 87% efficient. Uh, if you compare this to a single distilled whiskey, you're going to end up about 90% efficient. So you can see where you lose a little bit on the second distillation, but due to the higher proof, it's not quite as bad. Uh, on the other end, if you're doing a single distilled vodka, you'll end up about 90% efficient again, because again, single distillation. Now, if you're looking at a gin where you've, you're making vodka, putting it back in the still, running it by the botanicals, that second pass, like I said, generally very efficient you're going to end up about 88.5% efficient, if not a little bit higher. Like I said, there's still going to be some loss, but overall it's going to be your best case you know, scenario to be running a really clean alcohol into your gin to begin with. 
So that's kind of where we end up with sizing, is you look at your efficiencies, and then you say, okay, how much do I want to make? Now, in order to make this much, how much do I have to put into my still? And then how much time do I want to spend? Uh, so the easy way to do this is we look at, say, I want to be a 20,000 case distillery. I want to work 48 weeks a year, which gives me maybe a vacation. Although if you run a distillery, you never get a vacation. Uh, more than likely, that time is going to be spent fixing all your equipment as it breaks. So I use 48 as a pretty standard year. Um, as you push your operations and you are running five or seven days a week, that four weeks of maintenance is really going to be helpful because it will allow you not to have the unplanned maintenance the rest of the year. So where do we end up? If we're starting about putting in 20,000, or we want 20,000 cases out, we go, okay, so I need 20,000 cases. That works out to roughly 100 gallons I need to produce a week of uh, finished product. So if we need 100 gallons of finished product, and let's say we're making whiskey, and we're going to say it's single distilled whiskey. So that means we're 90% efficient. So we're going to lose about 10% in the process. So that means to make 100 gallons, we need to put in roughly 110 at that same 60 proof. Uh, it's not quite accurate, but it's close enough for where we are today. Now, if you're putting in 110 at 60% alcohol, if and really you're putting in 10% uh, alcohol, so you need six times that. So again, roughly 660. Um, there's some you know, fluff around there. And if you can get some better efficiencies, maybe we could run a 500 gallon still once a week to get there. Now, if you're going to run a, say, uh, you know, I'm running the business by myself. Okay. I can distill one day a week, ferment one day a week, go sell product three days a week. Hey, this, this, you know, I need a 500 gallon still. Now, when you're growing, you look around and you say, okay, I'm going to be huge. I can't keep my product in stores. Um, Let's say I just want to grow my number of stills. So I start off with one 400-gallon still, and I want to add two more because I'm going to now just be blowing the doors off. I'm going to grow from 20,000 cases to 200,000 cases. Now we're going to need to start looking at how we're cooling the stills. The size of the physical body isn't really that great. But where the issue comes in is how are we going to deliver the cooling that is necessary? And so you have to start looking at, you know, earlier you can do, run a reservoir buffer tank. Uh, when you start getting bigger like this, you're going to need to have a big chiller that is continuously cooling as you go to 24-hour operations. That's it. Thanks to our guest today, John McKee, for coming on and to the Dalkita team for making this thing happen. And, of course, a special thanks to you for listening to our show this week. You can send us your feedback by emailing distillingcraft at dalkita.com. And, of course, if you want to find out more about this episode, go to our show notes page on our website, www.dalkita.com slash show notes. Remember to subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. And finally, special thanks to the man that puts all of this together, our sound editor, Daniel Phillips of Zero Crossing Productions. Until next time, stay safe out there. I'm Colleen Moore. Dalkita is committed to getting intelligent and quality design solutions out of the craft distilling industry. Check them out at their website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L-K-I-T-A dot com. Until next time, 
This has been Distilling Craft. Cheers. Cheers.